Here's a quick word from our football educational partners over at the Scouting Academy. Listen, we've said it all the time. If you love the analysis and you're passionate about football, then you really need to check out the Scouting Academy. Whether you're a football coach, aspiring writer, or even aspiring football agent, the Scouting Academy is really a perfect place for you to learn and develop your skills as an analyst. With curriculum that spans over 375 years of coaching and personnel experience, the Scouting Academy offers you a 16-week online course that you can tailor and build to meet your needs and your interests. Whether you're learning about wide receivers or defensive linemen, you can make the experience what you want it to be. Listen, I've said it to you on this podcast many times. I've spent my own money, my own time, and time away from my friends and family because I am just this passionate about this game. And the Scouting Academy is the place where I really feel like I've learned the most I've ever learned about the game of football. It's made me a better analyst. It's made me a better person in terms of the coaching I do on the field. I can't say enough great things about it. If you have any questions about the Scouting Academy, please don't hesitate to reach out to Dan Hatman on Twitter or reach out to the Scouting Academy online via email. I'm open to all questions as well. Heck, I'm still even a student there myself. Please don't hesitate to reach out. I really think that once you learn all the tools and gain the knowledge that they have to offer, I really think you're going to be absolutely excited about the game of football again. This is the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. This is where it all counts. This is why we're here. This is why each one of us are here. And now, here's your host. Welcome back to another edition of the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. I am Paul Pertichese, and joining me as always this evening is Mr. Matt Caraccio. Matt, welcome. Paul, I'm psyched because this is when we finally get to take a chance and sit back and listen to all those people out there that kind of inspired us in terms of, you know, just how much we have a passion for evaluation. And, you know, we spent all this time talking about prospects. And now it's time to give our listeners really more of a a well-rounded approach and listen to some of the people that we admire, we are inspired by. And I'm really excited, Paul, about the guest tonight. Yeah, so we have with us this evening Mr. Mark Schofield. Mark has been on the show multiple times in the past, one of the best at evaluating the quarterback position. Mark, welcome back to the Saturday Sunday Football Podcast. Paul, Matt, always great to be with you guys. Um, Are you guys okay? Are you okay? It's a tough, tough time right now to be a Giants fan. With Odell, no longer a member of the team, no vision, no clear pan. They still might not be looking for a quarterback. And even if they are, I'm not even sure if there's the, the if they're looking at the right ones. Maybe you tonight can kind of sell us on this quarterback class a little bit or maybe try to get our hopes up a little bit because hope is about all we have as Giants fans right now. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I know you guys and I know the great work that you do and I know how you're well versed on not just this group of prospects but the next couple of classes and so if you guys want to talk 2020 that's fine with me too we could go down that road can we i find i feel like there's going to be no solace for what we lost in virtue on the virtue of what's coming up because i i feel like i feel like unless we're talking about you know i feel like if we're maybe going to the the sunshine class and the potential of justin fields and we're going down that far then i i cringe mark i cringe mark that i will not find any comfort 
well, necessarily what's coming up. As the three of us all know, I mean, development, it is not linear, but at this point, no matter what happens, Giants fans have to be placing their chips into the development part of the board because you're going to need that with whomever you guys draft, whether it's at six, whether it's at 17, whether it's at 96, whether it's 101 next year. I mean, <laughs> at some point you're going to need somebody to develop along, along the way. But as always, guys, fantastic to be here. Fantastic to be with you. I hope you guys are doing okay. The sun will come up tomorrow. We'll all get to have lunch. It will be okay. <laughs> Absolutely. So, man, I've been talking about this quarter, quarterback class for a while. Obviously, got a little bit more pizzazz once Kyler Murray decided to pick football over baseball. So let's just start right in at the top of this quarterback class. And let's start out with those two guys. You know, Kyler Murray, you know, from Oklahoma, Dwayne Haskins from Ohio State. They couldn't be more different in almost every capacity, stylistically, size, frame, how they win on the field. You know, just kind of dive in a little bit, Mark, and and tell us a little bit about what you think about each of these guys, you know, how you think they could potentially transition. You know, both of them, it's going to be a big transitional to them coming into the NFL, only one-year starters. What do you think about these two? Do you think they weren't being taken in the top ten of of the draft? Uh, let's let's start there, Paul. And it's a fantastic question. And you're right; these guys could not be more unlike. I mean, they both wore red uniforms, and that pretty much <laughs> ends the similarity. Because with Murray, you have the athleticism, you have the arm talent, you have the ability to play off structure, you have what I call sort of angle erasing athleticism, in which if you're linebacker or safety, you've got the angle on him. Forget it; you don't. He's gone in the blink of an eye. With Haskins, you have sort of the mental approach. He's the battleship back there. He's the prototypical pocket passer, whatever Stephen A. Smith might want to say about him. He's not a running quarterback. He's a guy that's going to have to live by play strength and footwork. He's more Ben Roethlisberger than Lamar Jackson. And so these are very different quarterbacks. Do they warrant being picked in the top five, these guys? I think in a vacuum, no, but that gets us to sort of the difference between evaluation and valuation. These guys, evaluation-wise, are probably late first-round quarterbacks, but evaluation is one thing. Getting a value to them when the quarterback position anyway is such a position of need, and you've got to get it right, otherwise you're lost. That's one part of it, and now in these days, we see the path for many teams. You get that rookie quarterback, you get him on his rookie deal, you build around them and you make the run. Look at the Cleveland Browns right now. Look at seven of the 12 teams in the playoffs last year. Had a quarterback on their rookie deal. Yes, an asterisk with Carson Wentz being hurt, but still, that's the path. And so if you're a team that needs a quarterback, you're going to go get one because it's going to give you that window to maximize that opportunity. With Murray, and we can sort of dive into these guys tangentially before really getting in, but with, with Murray, what's going to be different between these two guys, I think. How much are you a believer in where offenses are going? Because if you sort of believe in sort of the open game, the spread stuff, the way offenses seem to be trended, you're going to be a believer in Kyle Murray. And he is still an outlier. Even if he comes in, he comes in above 5'10", 207, he is still a size outlier. But with the way teams are trended offensively and schematically, you can potentially bank on him and his athleticism and the arm talent and all that stuff to get by. With Haskins, it's more the traditional path. He's very advanced 
mentally, even beyond just the 14 starts. You see him and evaluating quarterbacks. It is not a snap to whistle job. It is a huddle to whistle job. And you see him at the line of scrimmage, adjusting protections, moving people around, bringing the tight end to block and pass protection. Uh, his game against Purdue was up and down. They were losing down by two scores. But you see him in the fourth quarter doing stuff like that when he thinks he's getting a zero blitz on a fourth and eight. They still drop so he gets a different look post-snap, and he still threads the needle on a band-aid for a touchdown. That's the kind of stuff that he does. You see him making anticipation throws to the middle of the field. Murray can do some of that. But Haskins is better at it. You see Haskins having that mental acuity to look people off with his eyes. It's natural. He's a natural manipulator, whereas for Murray, it has to be sort of schemed where he has to sort of know to look to one side and then to the other. And so these guys are different. If you're somebody that values really the mental approach, Haskins might be your guy. If you're somebody that has the foresight to see where the league is trending and you value athleticism, Murray might be your guy. I'm sure there will some team. There will be some teams that have Murray QB one. Some that will have Haskins QB one, and I'm sure that there are some evaluators out there, maybe amongst ourselves, that will have different guys at one. But I think both of these guys are the top two guys, and we we'll probably see both of them off the board at least by the sixth selection. So you know, I mean, I, a lot of things that you said there were really, really interesting because it goes back to some of the things that you know that I, I'm constantly kind of swirling around my mind this off season and things that I wanted to actually talk to you about and. And things that we can kind of flesh out maybe in some of these moments, you know, the idea versus on structure versus off structure, you know, I've been trying to make the argument and this knowing that you played the position, knowing that you have a familiarity with the ins and outs of it, you know, part of my argument has been that there's always an element, regardless of whether or not you're a pocket passer, or whether or not you're somebody that's playing off structure. Um, or somebody that's playing out in more of a move out passing game, or somebody that's in more of a rollout passing game. The argument being that, you know, the minute the ball snapped, everything is pretty much off structure. You know, the minute the ball snapped, you're always adjusting your platform. You're always adjusting your sight lines. You always have to move up, slide, and adjust to pressure. And that pressure will be different depending upon the pass rush angles, depending upon the first level pass rush angles and whatnot. And I I think that this comes down to, you know, that problem of dealing with, you know, the post-snap decision-making process that goes on. You know, what are the affordances of the scheme that he is in versus, you know, what is actually um, something that he is adapting to on the fly? And I, I would I would argue I would I would question or at least I would I would wonder, Mark, how you feel about this. Like you said, I think they're equally adept at being adaptable within their own ways. So in other words, like the idea that once the ball is snapped, you know, you see that a player like Dwayne Haskins can do a lot from inside the pocket to manage, manipulate, and win in that moment. Whereas you see with Kyler Murray, he's going to, like you say, you know, like you said, he calls it, you know, you called it uh, eraser athleticism, where he's going to use that in order to extend the play, but also to erase maybe the, the, maybe the pressures that he feels from different um, pass rush angles and whatnot. I mean, do you feel... Do you feel that Kyler Murray and Dwayne Haskins, do you feel like when it comes to the play breaking down and them having to manage the variables and the different things that are going on in the NFL, who do you think dealing with NFL problems gives you the most adaptable problem solver of a quarterback? Who do you think is going to make those decisions best? And I don't care how you make them. I don't care if you're talking about rolling out and extending the play because that's how you see the field. I'm not going to you know, take Patrick Mahomes and tell him to play differently. You know, I, It doesn't bother me how you do it. Who do you think is the most adaptable problem solver at the position right now to play in the NFL? What do you think about that? 
You know, Matt, it's a fantastic question, and you set that up extremely well. And I think that's a tremendous point that you made in which how you solve problems, with, especially with respect to pressure, will go a long way into determining what kind of quarterback you are going to be and how good you actually are going to ultimately be as a quarterback in the NFL. When you look at how these two quarterbacks handle pressure, one of the biggest knocks on Haskins is when he is pressured, that's when things sort of break down for him. You watch, for example – his game against Penn State. And I love watching games where quarterbacks struggle. I love watching games where a quarterback's team loses. Like the Purdue game I thought was a fascinating watch for him. Penn State was a fascinating watch as well. And I've probably watched that game now, including watching it live the night it was played, probably six to seven times. And at halftime of that game, I thought that they were going to pull Haskins because he looked awful. He was getting blitzed. His throws were all over the place. Simple hitch routes. He was airmailing them. And I literally thought – Urban Meyer has a decision to make here because he does not look good. And he battled back, and you saw over the course of that game him start to learn that, look, I can't escape. I have to climb. I have to move, and I have to adapt in that way. And so you did see evidence of Haskins and his ability to sort of adapt during the course of a game. And as he got through the season, you saw more and more and more of that. And so he's learning the process. But Murray, I think, is already there. And the thing with Murray is that, you know, traditionally, as I've been doing this, I was always one that, look, you need to be able to make throws from the pocket. You need to be able to, like, stick in there in the pocket and make a throw on third and seven in situations like that. And you still need to be able to do that. But you have to be able to do both. And the idea that football plays are all off structure, I think, is a very good one because it's controlled chaos. Nothing ever goes the way it's supposed to. If it, if it did, we wouldn't be here because it would just be a game of robots. And so Murray's ability as an athlete, first and foremost, is going to serve him well. Murray's ability in his baseball background is going to serve him well. Not to make a one-to-one comparison with him and Mahomes, but the ability to sort of drop the arm slot, drop the arm angle with that baseball background and change the throwing lane just with your arm rather than relying on your feet and sliding around, that is going to help him. He gets edge pressure, he can run, he can climb, or he can just drop the arm. It comes naturally to him. And all of this goes without even talking about the fact that Kyler Murray is a much more advanced passer from the pocket than I think he's given credit for. He just had his pro day and people were sort of raving about how good he looked at the pocket. Something like 82, 84, 86% of his throws came from the pocket. And you see him... Yes, manipulation is a work in progress for him, but anticipation is not. And I'm not talking just throwing the hitch route to the backside when that backside corner is 10 yards off. I'm talking middle of the field. I'm talking between the numbers, between the hash marks. You see him when they run mesh with either Y-sit or that sit-seam combination. Mm-hmm. He's doing it against Ohio State early this season. He's doing it late where he knows when the, when the coverage is and he's getting the ball out with anticipation and throwing it between defenders. He's throwing dig routes with anticipation against cover two looks with the underneath linebackers in front of those two safeties. That's advanced heady stuff that not a lot of these other quarterbacks are doing. And so you put that together. Can Haskins adapt and beat pressure and learn to survive? Yes. But I think Murray is advanced in that regard. His athleticism will help him. And when there comes a day, which it will come, we've seen it with other athletic quarterbacks, when he's not the athlete, he has that mental background behind it anyway, which while not perhaps as advanced as Haskins, is there and he's got the mental acuity with anticipation throws and the like to win. So I think you put it all together. I would take Murray in respect to that question. Yeah, great discussion there. I think, you know, hearing you discuss Kyler Murray there, it's hard not to 
you know, get some vibes of Russell Wilson because some of the stuff that you were talking about there is very Russell Wilson-like, which is if I was going to pick a guy who even remotely resembles, it's way more a guy like him. And it's not even a apples to apples comparison when people mention Lamar Jackson and Kyler Murray. Totally, in my opinion, totally different stratospheres in terms of, you know, what they showed on film in terms of passing the ball. I know I love Murray because I saw him while he used that athleticism to his advantage. And at times he took off right away. You saw a lot of times him moving around the pocket with his eyes down the field looking for that big play. And that that was one of my favorite things about Kyler Murray. And then on the Haskins side, I was most impressed with Haskins because I thought he showed some growth and development in the last couple games of the year. I thought they were some of his best games down the stretch. So I was really impressed with that. But I agree with you. I think Murray's has that capability of solving problems in a more adaptable way what's thrown at him than the NF- at the NFL level than in the collegiate level. But I do think both of them are, are intriguing. Both of them have growth and development to do, but I do think both of them could at least give hope to fans of a team that need a quarterback. Maybe the team at number six, hypothetically. Right. So, so we'll see. He Before didn't play we... for Eli Manning's quarterback. <laughs> this this is true. Him. Here we go. So that's, that's a big problem, Paul. That's a big problem. He doesn't fit our organization. That's that's probably that's probably the case, uh, Mark. Before we transition to the other two guys being considered potential uh, first round quarterback prospects, uh, and we'll talk about whether or not that is even remotely warranted momentarily. I did want to bring up this opportunity right here with all the talk of these two guys and the talk of if the Cardinals take Kyler Murray, Josh Rosen, you know, being available potentially in a trade after being the 10th pick last year. You don't have to go into a detailed thought on what you thought about him last year, but quick synopsis, like where were you on Rosen last year? Were you a fan of his game? Were there things that concerned you? And how do you take something in the stock of he had a horrific rookie year, but he was playing with a very poor offensive line, minimal weapons, a coach and scheme that really didn't seem to kind of cater to the offensive side of the ball and what he can do. How much does that now make us, how much of that, in your opinion, does it change what you thought about him coming out of college or one year in that situation, you have a hard time saying, changing your tune on what you thought about him last year? Yeah, it's a great question, Paul. And, and, you know, in a draft filled with fantastic storylines, this, along with a couple of other quarterbacks we'll talk about, is pretty much near the top for me, watching what happens with Rosen. And, you know, full disclosure, he was my QB1 last year. I had him over Baker. I love Josh Rosen between the lines. I mean, all of the sort of knocks on him. And, yeah, there were things around the edges that you could say, some of the turnovers and things like that. But most of the knocks, thinking back to this time last year, were – his attitude or he has interests away from football or those sort of character type red flags from what I could see. Look, he was extremely clean mechanically. I loved some of the mental approach to him. I thought he was pretty scheme diverse. And so I was a huge Josh Rosen fan. I think some of what hurts the sort of national, we'll say perception of Josh Rosen is a bit of recency bias because you watch his first start. And I actually wrote two pieces on Rosen over the past couple of weeks, one over Big Blue View making the case for him at six, you know, trading that sixth pick for him, and one over Pat's pulpit saying, look, if he's available for a third rounder, then Bill Belichick better be all over it because you watch his first start against Seattle and you see some of that mental approach. You see him 
reading plays on the fly. You see him looking off safeties, looking off corners, things like that. You watch that game he had against Green Bay, week 13 at Lambeau Field when the Packers were fighting for their playoff lives. And it's got the snow and number 12 is across the field for him. He converted a bunch of third downs in that game when they were spitting safeties at the snap, when he was trying to sort of read things on the fly, showed you that almost veteran mental savvy in that pre-snap, post-snap phase. You see him convert a third and 23, backed up in the shadow of their own goalposts with four minutes to go in a tie game when he has to create outside of structure. One of the knocks on him was he couldn't do that. Well, he did it. Buys time, rolls to his right, finds Larry Fitzgerald with a deep ball to move the sticks on third and 23. They go down, they kick the field goal to win it. That right there, those two games, you know, week four, week 13 or so, fantastic. But after that, he gets pulled from a couple of games, they struggle, and now there's this perception that he was a bad rookie quarterback. Well, we've had similar rookie quarterbacks, such as Jared Goff or an Eli Manning or a Peyton Manning, or you go on down the list. Rookie quarterbacks can struggle. We saw it at times this year with Josh Allen or Lamar Jackson, and it happens. I think with Rosen, there's obviously the context to it. Look, I had to Google some of the guys he was completing passes to. I I did not recognize him. Maybe you guys knew a Trent Sherfield, and I'm probably sure you guys did because of the great work you guys do, but I didn't know who these guys were he was throwing to. Those past couple of last couple of weeks of the season, he's playing behind all backups on the offensive line. And so I, I think the context thing is key with him. Now, having said all that, if you're Steve Kime, if you're Cliff Kinsbury, and you've come in and you want to run your offense and you realize as you look at this roster that we still have holes up front on the offensive line, we still have some things that we need to figure out. We don't know if we're going to be able to protect our quarterback on a consistent basis next year. Well, what did we just talk about with Kyler Murray and how he has the ability to sort of adapt on the fly to pressure and perhaps evade pressure better than Dwayne Haskins? Well, Josh Rosen is a similar quarterback. And so the calculus might be he's going to fit our scheme better. He's going to be able to stay alive longer because we might have a patchwork offensive line still. And so I can understand why that might be the thought for Arizona saying, look, we're going to go all in on Kyler Murray. We're going to do it our way. And this guy gives, whether it's Haskins or Rosen or Murray, out of those three quarterbacks, given the roster we're going to have, Murray is going to be our best bet to sort of stay alive and extend plays and sort of create an offensive structure. If that's the case, then all 31 other teams better be making calls about Josh Rosen because I still think he could be a very good quarterback in this league. And I think at times he was last year. It's just for this moment in time, it might make more sense for Arizona to go in a different direction. I wouldn't do it, but I can understand if that's their thinking, them making that decision. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, I think when you when it comes down to it, if Josh Rosen could be had for a second or third round pick, the value there probably easily supersedes the value of picking a Kyler Murray or Dwayne Haskins in the top 10. But I guess it comes down to the scheme and the style and the fit and, and all trying to piece it together. And I think you're from hearing you talk, I think if all things were equal and you just needed to pick one of those three guys taking compensation out of it to be your quarterback moving forward in a very neutral situation, you know, not a specific scheme you're running, you still would maybe put your chips on Josh Rosen. Am I re- am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, Paul, I, I think you've got that exactly right. Sort of in a vacuum, if these guys were all coming out right now, I would still have Rosen over the other two. I mean, it would be close, but I'd still have Rosen. I think, you know, he'd be sort of, these two guys would be more in that Darnold tier where I had them last year because I had Rosen, Baker, and Darnold. And, you know, still first-round grades and things like that. It's just this was the quarterback that I sort of graded out and looked at and thought was going to be a little bit better. And then I, you know, I'm sort of still 
a believer in Josh Rosen. And so that's kind of where I am on it, but that's me and that's in a vacuum and we've all got our processes and stuff. And so I can see why people might say Haskins. I can see why people might say Murray. Well, you, you know what though, just to chime in, because I, I, I do understand uh, the point here. And I think this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, Mark. I think the landscape of opportunities for action on the football field vary proportionately to the action capabilities of the player. So you're not going to see Josh Rosen, you're not going to see the Dwayne Haskins of the world feel compelled to be rolling out and trying to do things in the open field that they're not capable of. They're going to be using opportunities that their physical capacities are able to better handle in ways that they're better able to do it. So you're going to see more death management of the pocket. You're going to see more minute slide steps and more um, climbing, slight mid-steps to the left, light to the right. You're going to see timing issues. You're going to see post-snap and pre-snap adjustments, things of that nature, because you're not going to see two players ever play the game the same way. And I think that that's ultimately, when it comes down to it, I think there's perfectly a reality where, regardless if you know you have Kyler Murray, Russell Wilson, all these players out on the field, you know, they're all going to solve these problems differently. It really comes down to is who do you think is really the most adaptable in taking what they can do and solving the problems that they're faced with, regardless of how that looks. That's what I I really think it comes down to. Yeah. I mean, it's a great point, Matt. And, you know, when you go through the process of studying these guys over the course of a summer or two summers or a couple of years, as the case may be with, I know one guy we're about to talk about, there are certain plays that sort of stick in your mind that you just carry with you. And there's one of Josh Rosen's that I will always remember. And, you know, again, the knock on him was, you know, can't really, not a great athlete, you know, can't really create off structure and things like that. There was a play against Arizona State where they ran a trick play and he ends up after a handoff and a reverse type of situation, he's in the flat and they have a throwback play to him where they're going to throw back to him and then he's going to look to throw downfield. And as he's waiting for this ball to come to him, there's an unblocked defender who's going to have a free shot at him, but he's able to catch, step around and then make a downfield throw and throw an absolute strike on a deep over route. And why I loved that play is because it gets to sort of what you were getting at, Matt. It put him in an unfamiliar situation. It's not like he's in the pocket or in the gun and he's, or he's under center and he's dropped back and now he's got somebody at him. He's out sort of in the flat, basically. And he's in unfamiliar territory and he has to sort of rely on muscle memory and athleticism. He just has a guy with a free shot at him, steps around him, steps up and makes a throw. And so when I saw a play like that, I thought, look, for all you want to say about his inability to create outside, he can use his footwork to survive. And I wrote a number of pieces saying, look, he can follow the Tom Brady path. And so... I think when you sort of see Josh Rosen do things like that, you see him in that play I described against Green Bay, making a play outside of the pocket. That coupled with the mental approach makes me think that he can still play this position at a high level. You get a little bit of help around him. And again, I I'm, I like the adaptability he has shown at times, and he's shown some of it already in the NFL. And so if you're trying to decide which quarterback you're going to go in on right now, there's a guy with a year of experience. And I, I would say, look, you can still be a believer. 
Yeah, I think I think you're 100 percent accurate, and I do feel like the there's not a lot of teams who are really in the quarterback market that I could see a team like the Patriots coming in and stealing him. You know, if the Giants decide to go after you know a Haskins or something, and then you know the Cardinals take Kyler Murray, and I can see the Patriots team like that coming in, and they might say, yeah, we'll give you our late second round pick or whatever, and we'll, and we'll take Josh Rosen. And if that's really what the cost is, you know, I know that there was talk about the third round that you know maybe. I, I still have a hard time thinking that he would be traded for a third rounder and not at least at least a second rounder and maybe a conditional pick on top of it. But but that would be a, another genius Belichick like move. And, and I could so, totally see it happening. So definitely a big storyline to follow. I, I don't think anything's going to happen, though, on that front until potentially draft night, because the Cardinals would kind of be silly to, to not wait and see, you know, you know, God forbid something happens with Kyler Murray. Like, you know, I think it would be something that they pick Kyler Murray and then you start hearing like something's in the works as we get a little bit closer, but not really go down before that. Because I think they would wait till either right after they pick Kyler Murray or at least like the week of. I'd be surprised if if they make that decision and, and trade Josh Rosen in like sometime in March or early April. I think there's no benefit to really do that, I think, right now. So it's a big storyline. It'll be fun to follow. So let's transition to those other two guys, and that's Drew Locke out of Missouri and Daniel Jones out of Duke. For whether it's warranted or not, there's a lot of buzz around these guys that they could both potentially be first-round quarterbacks. You've heard the Broncos at 10, highly connected to Drew Locke out of Missouri. You've heard teams like the Redskins, and then there's been some talk since the Giants got that pick 17 that maybe the Giants could have some interest in Daniel Jones. Talk about these two guys a little bit because I know Matt and I, we see some things to get excited about for these guys, but we don't see we don't see prospects that warrant you know being guys who should be being considered. We think in the top ten or top fifteen. Where are you kind of at? Where are you on these two guys? Yeah, I'm I'm right pretty much where you guys are. And proud of fact, I mean, I might be even lower on Daniel Jones than others. And let's start with Locke because you no, know, he's somebody that we've got multiple years of film on. And what's been interesting watching Drew Locke over the past couple of seasons sort of evolve as a quarterback was you look at two years ago, a year ago, this was basically Baylor's offense. Everything was a smoke route. Everything was a hit go. Everything was a comeback. Everything was a slant. Everything was sort of to the boundary. And you know, last year, you know, under Derek Dooley, he started to do some more stuff in the middle of the field. I've charted like six or seven of his games, basically, you know, in terms this season, just in terms of throw placement to area of the field. And it's been, an, a, you know, you've seen growth in him throwing between the hash marks, between the numbers. He has the arm, but with him, it's Josh Allen-esque in a sense. It's a double-edged sword because he has an arm that bails him out of situations, but it gets him into other situations because he relies on it too much. It's he, You've seen him make fadeaway throws. You've seen him attempt throws downfield when the feet are not set. He looks more like a basketball player attempting fadeaway jumpers at times than a quarterback stepping and throwing with rhythm and solid footwork beneath him. And so you put that together – and there are some things that we know NFL teams will look at them and say, we can make this work. But that has typically led to madness at the National Football League level because we see these quarterbacks with a big arm and somebody says, look, we can coach him up. And it just never happens. You know, he's kind of got that toolsy thing to him that sometimes never pans out. 
we've seen some growth from him even during this draft process. You see him down in Mobile. The footwork looks great. He had a fantastic week down at the Senior Bowl. Looked pretty good at the Combine, I'm sure. You know, if he, I don't know when Missouri's Pro Day is, but I'm sure whenever that is, he's going to look great there. So he will probably come off the board in the top 15. I don't, I wouldn't do it. You know, I, I think that there's a schematic limitation to him because I think he's a much better vertical and boundary passer than anything else. You don't see a ton of timing and rhythm throws. You don't see a lot from sort of situations where he's going to read the secondary, read even a middle of the field, open or closed look and make decisions off of that. And so there are some question marks that I have with him from that side, but sometimes the arm is good enough that it's going to get people drafted. Now let's talk about Daniel Jones for a second. And what's interesting about Jones was, and I don't know if this is sort of my own thinking on him or not, but I thought senior bowl week was set up perfectly for him guys, because when I watch him, I see a quarterback who is probably a West coast quarterback period full stop. I love his placement at times in the short area hitches and slants. He seems to show, seems to show good ball placement on those throws, good understanding of leverage, his process and speed on those quick game concepts seems to be at its best. One of my favorite throws of his was a throw against Virginia and Ohio, Ohio concept where they had the, they trapped the slot receiver when he's trying to throw the out route. So he immediately drills in the vertical along the boundary against a cover two type look for a touchdown, that snap second decision on a quick game concept and mobile. He's going to be playing for John Gruden, you know, Mr. West coast. And he just struggled down at mobile. And, you know, the Wednesday day of practices, it was closed to the media because of the weather. So we didn't get to watch the tape until that night. And his first three throws in that seven-on-seven drill, this is the second day of practice. It's seven-on-seven. It's a controlled environment. You should be hitting the throws by now. He misses on an out route to the left, short, quick out. Second one, he's throwing a deep comeback to the left sideline. He stares it, he stares it, and he stares at it, and he throws a pick six. And on the third one, it's a similar route, another comeback along the left side, and he stares at it. His receiver falls down. He stares at it and throws a pick six. And it's just, it's one of those, you take the pen and you put it down and you say, I don't know what we're doing here. I honestly don't know what we're doing. And so that coupled with deficiencies I've seen from him in other aspects of playing the position, downfield throws, ball placement to other levels, other than the short area of the field, I have true reservations about him. And what seems to be the talk about Daniel Jones is, well, he played for, you know, the guy that coached man and. Peyton and Eli. And so you're going to be able to coach him up. You know, he's got to have that bed of knowledge behind him. Okay. That's an argument, but you're talking about guys that won Super Bowls and odds are Peyton Manning and Eli Manning would have been NFL quarterbacks if it were me coaching them, if it were my cat coaching them. And so to basically bank the future of your franchise on a coaching relationship, I think is an interesting and curious decision at best. And so I'm almost, he's not going to be in my top five quarterbacks. He's going to like crack my top seven, basically. And if a team wants to go all in on Daniel Jones, I wish them the best of luck. I hope it pans out, but I have severe reservations about him. So, you know, I just had a question with regards to a couple of things that you brought up. And and I think a lot of what you said is, is really interesting. I mean, my question to you is, is that, you know, you talked a little bit about, you know, anticipation throws. You talked a little bit about, you know, touch and, and arm talent. And then you kind of alluded to also kind of like the kinematics and the way in which the player is moving, setting his feet, things of that nature. Let me ask you a question. And this is just out of curiosity when you're looking at quarterbacks. When you're watching some of these players like a Drew Locke, like a like a Daniel Jones, um, 
and we could probably even throw in um, several other quarterbacks in this discussion, but the way in which the player, let me ask you this, valuing the player's outcome over the way in which they got there. So in other words, if you have like this, you know, you're watching the film and there's an NFL problem that they're facing, but yet they complete the pass. They make progress in them in the way that they wanted to. Their team moves down the field. They get the first down. You know, to what degree do you say, well, they they finished the play. You know, they they did what they had to do. It wasn't pretty, but they got it done. How do you reconcile that? How do you reconcile, you know, kinematics, the way in which their body's moving versus the outcome of the play in terms of valuation of the player over the long haul? So, like, it ain't pretty. Kyler Murray's throwing through a thousand different arm slots that probably no QB coach in his mind would ever recommend. But, you know, like Patrick Mahomes, they're getting the job done. How do you reconcile some of that with some of these players when you're going through them? And I think Daniel Jones and Drew Locke are probably tremendous contrast to one another in some ways. You know, the evaluation process when you're studying and scouting players is often a process of self-evaluation and self-discovery. And Matt, I might ask you maybe two months from now to ask me that question again, because I think the overarching question about this quarterback class is that question, is process over results or is it results over process? And let's frame it with two examples, two completely different quarterbacks. With, with Kyler Murray, I called him sort of that angle eraser, right? And uh, mm-hmm. I said plays, there are plays that stick with you. And one of the plays that sticks with me with him is a play against Army where they're running all curls. It's They're on the plus 33 or so. And he's reading the two inside curls. It's out of a two-by-two. Two. He opens to the left. That curl is that curl route from the inside slot receiver is covered by both the linebacker and a safety over the top. So he comes off of it. He looks to the right to read that inside curl, and the receiver falls down. He starts climbing the pocket. Now, both boundary curl routes are wide open. And for any other quarterback in this class, I would want him to keep those eyes downfield and throw that curl route. It's a third and seven play. You've got a curl route on the boundary that you're looking at that is wide open, past the sticks, throw it, get back to the huddle. It's first and 10. He tucks and goes, and he outruns everybody for a touchdown. He's got two linebackers that have an angle. He outruns them. And then both safeties have the angle on them. And he outruns those guys. Now, for any other quarterback, like I said, I'm concerned with the process. And I would look at that play and I would say, that's a fantastic result. But that's not the process that's going to work in the National Football League. Because you're not going to be able to outrun those guys to the edge. You're not going to be able to outrun those safeties and get a touchdown on that play. Throw that boundary curl route. And so with Murray, we might have to sort of adjust our thinking. I might have to adjust my thinking and say there are some times and for some players that you throw the rules out the window. You take the rule book and you disregard it. And you look at the results and you say that, look, he's the kind of special talent where the results matter more than the process. And he will be able to make this work in the National Football League. Let's take a different example. Tyree Jackson. Couldn't be a more different quarterback, obviously, than Kyler Murray. And one of the concerns that I have with him is a mechanical one. And I've said before that mechanics don't matter until they matter. But when you watch Kyler Murray, I mean, excuse me, when you watch Tyree Jackson, there is a, there he has this tendency to lock up that front leg when he's throwing the football. And I just literally got done writing a piece about it for Matt Waldman's site. I've mentioned this other places as well. You know, I've literally, I always have books like this, coaching quarterback mechanics. That's a great one. Vaxman, I know that one. <laughs> coaching this one another i just ordered the third edition of this one um and i 
pulled out quotes. For example, Axman talks about how sometimes when you're a taller quarterback, you overstride and you lock mm-hmm. up that front mm-hmm. leg and it leads mm-hmm. to sometimes high throws, sometimes low throws. That's an issue you see with Tyree Jackson. There is a play against Toledo where he makes a ridiculous deep ball throw. It's like it, it goes for, I think, 57 yards, you know, just from where he's throwing to where it's caught, but it's on an angle. So it's probably more like 60, 65. And it's slightly to the outside shoulder where it's not perfectly placed, but on the deep ball throw, you just want general accuracy. But he locks up that front leg when he's throwing it. And that causes that break in the biomechanical chain between the upper body and the lower body. It works as basically a break. You stop your momentum when you lock up that front leg and you turn yourself into an arm thrower. It turns them into a pusher rather than a pure pocket thrower. And you saw his pro day. We're recording this on Wednesday. You saw his pro day today. He was still doing that at times. And so there are times when he could still make incredible throws, even fighting through that issue as he did on this throw against Toledo, this deep ball that gets put in a fantastic spot based on the coverage and everything else for a huge play. But will that still work for him going forward? And so while I am, I have been the process over results guy, and I will probably stay that way. There are guys in this class that are making me sort of question that, especially Kyler Murray. You know, he might be the ultimate test of that. What matters more, process or results? Because nine times out of 10, it's your process that gets you to the decision, that gets you to the right result in the end. That matters more, especially when you're trying to survive life in the NFL. But when you have a rare talent, sometimes the results might end up mattering more. You take that process and you want to get the other guys to follow and throw it out the window. I mean, think back to when we were kids and you knew that there was somebody in your class that was a little bit smarter or there was somebody on your team that was a little bit faster. And maybe they didn't need to do everything the way that everybody else was taught to do it, but they would still get it done. Can that be extrapolated to the NFL? Maybe the great ones and the rare ones have that kind of talent to make that work. Yeah, listen, I'm going to tell you, Mark, I I could have a whole show with you picking your brain apart on everything you just said and going way down those rabbit holes. Let's do it. No, 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 I would, would, yeah, man, I could, I can go way down those rabbit holes because there's a lot of arguments out there that there's so much reciprocity between everything happening on the field and everything we're trying to process orientedly break down. That is there really a distinguishing mark between either are the results even separate from the process Is the process separate from the results. Are they one in the same and are, are, does it invite a whole new framework for actually evaluating them to all to be together? So it's just a, it's just a wonderful, wonderful point. But I love, I love what you said, though, just about the idea of the rule book, the proverbial rule book with these players and the idea that the rule book really has to be thrown out the window because in general, we're evaluating players, human beings behaving in an environment and how everybody perceives the environment is uniquely different to them. It's like a fingerprint. I keep using that type of analogy. Everybody has their own fingerprint for the game. Kyler Murray doesn't know what it's like to be 6'5". Tyree, Tyree Jackson over there does not know what it's like to be 5'10". He just doesn't. He sees the game that way. So I, I don't want to belabor this any longer. We Again, rabbit holes galore, man. <laughs> Go way down those things. But Paul, I, I mean, let's kind of maybe move this forward a little bit because I, I do want to throw in a player that who I think is probably you know one of the enigmas in this class or the more polarizing figures in this class. You mentioned Tyree Jackson. I wonder if you could take us to back to Tyree Jackson and maybe throw in Will Greer and tell us some of your thoughts on him. Yeah, t- two sort of fascinating evaluations as well. And 
Now, let's start with Jackson because obviously he has made a name for himself and generated some buzz building off what was a pretty solid senior bowl week for him by testing sort of out of out of the stadium at the combine with you know a pretty fast 40 and some explosiveness to him. What was interesting was when I studied him over the summer to get ready for the season, I said that you know he was basically you know Josh Allen with a better feel for touch it and feel in you know, in trajectory and things like that, despite worse mechanics. I mean, that's kind of where I looked at him. And you could see some of the athleticism breaking out long touchdown runs against Army two years ago. You know, they move him around in the pocket. You see him make some ridiculous throws. You know, there's not a throwing window that he's afraid of at all. Um, and the mechanics are bad. You know, upper body mechanics, we haven't touched on those, but they're bad too. I mean, so it's a working process and he's trying to get better at it. The fear I have with him is twofold. One, these raw toolsy quarterbacks, again, in this current age and this CBA structure and everything like that, how often are they going to work out? How often do they get sort of the opportunities that they need to develop and refine their games? It doesn't always happen. Now, there have been examples. Dak Prescott might be a fantastic example of a guy that needed to fix some things, got the opportunity because of injuries and other reasons, and was able to have a fantastic rookie year. Now he's getting ready for a big payday. And so it can happen. It's just, you know, for example, I'm a Patriots guy, and I have a lot of Patriots fans, listeners to the Locked On Patriots podcast saying, look, Tyree Jackson, and sure. I mean, if they want to draft him at some point in this draft, maybe he could develop, but it doesn't always work that way. And so that's one concern. The other concern I have is this. And again, I just prefaced everything by saying mechanics don't matter until they matter. You know, if the ball gets there, I'm stealing that, by the way. I just no. want to throw, I'm stealing. Take Mechanics it. don't matter I, until they matter. Yeah. And you know, look, if the ball's getting where it's supposed to be, when it's supposed to be, I don't care how it gets there. Behind your back, between your legs, around your head, <laughs> don't care. doesn't matter to me. But if it's not getting to where it's supposed to be, when it's supposed to be there, and it's a mechanical problem, then it's an issue. And so, you know, when thinking about Tyree Jackson and thinking about mechanics, I put them into three categories. Fixable and correctable, workable and livable, fatal, right? And, for example, Carson Wentz, his footwork, his elbow and stuff like that, it was sort of an issue with him. It was an issue with his rookie season. They sort of addressed it with, with a throwing coach. He had an MVP-type season until he got hurt. So you can take his mechanics and say, fixable. You look at Sam Darnold. We all had saw that loop to his throwing motion last year. We talked about it ad nauseum on shows like this. I know I've talked about it a ton. He makes it work because he has a good understanding of anticipation. He is good from the mental approach. And even despite this dip to the start of the throwing motion, once he gets to here, once he gets to parallel, the ball gets snapped out of his hands pretty quickly. And so because of that mix of anticipation and that quick release to it, it's the ball still getting to where it needs to be when it needs to be there. So he can work with it. There are some fatal mechanical issues. Tim Tebow, there's a reason he's playing minor league baseball right now. It's because he looked like a trebuchet and not a quarterback. Blake Bortles just got cut. How many summers did we hear they were finally fixing his mechanics. And how many times did we get to week one and the mechanics were still a mess? So there are some players where the mechanics are fatal and they cannot overcome it. You know, and, and so with Jackson, my concern is which bucket does that straight leg issue end up in? Now, from film and some of the stuff we've seen, maybe you say it's one of the first two. Okay. My concern is the height thing. Because you go back to Steve Axman's point, and he talks about taller quarterbacks having an issue with that straight leg locking up. And then you look at the list of six foot six, six foot seven quarterbacks, and it's not pretty. You've got Flacco, sure. You've got Foles, sure. But then there are some guys that never panned out. 
And was it this biomechanical issue? And so that is a concern with them. You know, all that being said, if you've got to pick, say, sometime late day two, and you don't need a quarterback to play right away, I think Tyree Jackson is a certainly nice, athletic, toolsy type guy. If you want to bank on your quarterback coach developing him, do it. You know, I think, and especially in this class, look, there's a reason why he took his name back out of the transfer portal. It's because he can read the tweets. Now he can look around the landscape and say, in this group, I've got a pretty good shot to hear my name called on day two at least. And so I understand why he did what he did, and hopefully he lands in the right spot. Greer is probably still, even though he's had a bad draft process, I'd say, is going to end up QB5 for me. And I like him from a, a an appropriate aggression level, an intelligent ing- aggression level. I think he knows when to take risks. He's not afraid to take risks. He will throw the ball over the middle of the field. That's something he's been doing since day one. Even you go back to his days at Florida, you see him making throws to all levels of the field, anywhere on the field, doesn't care, supremely confident. You talked to him down at Mobile. He missed his media session because he was tied up. He's talking to the people in the scrum, and he basically says, yeah, I've got the best arm in this class. Yeah, I'm going to throw at the combine. Just like that confidence just dripping from his words. And did he back it up by throwing it 59 miles per hour? Yeah. Do you believe the ball velocity numbers at the combine? You probably shouldn't, but still, you know, looks pretty good on paper. And so has he had a bad draft process? Yeah. But I think he has a nice balance of aggression. There are two areas I'm concerned with. And one is sort of a ball security issue, the aggression thing where he does take some risks. That's part of it. He does need to learn to sort of take the ball and protect it more. He's, it almost looks like he's a flag football player at times where he knows, look, if they knock it out of my hands, it doesn't count as a fumble. So he doesn't secure the football. When he is moving the pocket, when he tucks and goes, he needs to secure the football. That's one. The other is he makes assumptions at times when he gets a pre-snap look from a defense. You look at, he threw a horrible goal line pick against Kansas where he assumed the slot defender was going to stay on the inside receiver. He jumps the outside slant and he threw it right to the guy because he assumed that that guy was going to stay inside. And there are times when he does that on a variety of route concepts. So he needs to get away from that. And that's part of the aggression thing with him. He sees a look and he thinks, I know what I got to do here and I can do it. And it burns him. And so he's one of those guys that I like the aggression because I've always thought that it's easier to dial it back than to dial it up. And so I think you put that, you get that right balance with him. You know, it's a Mahomes-esque in a sense, not that he's the next Patrick Mahomes or anything, but that was an issue with Mahomes. Could he find the right balance of conservatism and the aggression that he had? I think if he's in the right environment and gets the right coaching staff, sort of to do that with him, Will Will Greer is going to have a good NFL career. Yeah, I mean, I love all the points that you just made there, Mark, on both guys. I mean, Tyree Jackson is a guy who, yeah, is definitely a buzzy name right now. I don't I remember what the report was or who it was, said that he can go a lot higher than maybe people are expecting. You know, I think his talent maybe warrants day three, but I could see him probably not getting out of the second night. You know, the things that you talked about, the mechanics in terms of his footwork and then his release for me is, you know, I would put it in the fatal category category if it, if it was me i mean i hope he proves me wrong i hope he shortens it up and you know and i hope he goes on to have a great career because you know he's got a lot of intriguing you know traits to him but it just seems like 
on the day to combine, I was interacting with some, uh, some people on Twitter and they were like, I, I don't understand why was the NFL looking at Josh Allen as a top 10 pick and why is Tyree Jackson like a day three pick? You know, in my just my one person's opinion was was it was it was all about the mechanics and it was just the release. Josh Allen got the ball out very quickly. You know, he had his own issues and, and different issues, but it, you didn't see that slow release out of Josh Allen. You didn't see as that what you were talking about in terms of the leg. You know, you didn't see some of that. And I just thought sometimes in terms of passing ability, the athleticism showed up more on Josh Allen than it than it did on Tyree Jackson. So. I'm concerned that it's a fatal flaw. I hope it's not, but but that's where I, I'm a little bit concerned. And then obviously Will Greer. I'm a fan of Will Greer as well. He's in my top five. And the thing I've talked about all year on this show is him finding a way to, you know, straddle that line between being aggressive but not being reckless. And I think that's one of the best ways to describe Will Greer. And he just kind of comes across as a guy who, for whatever reason, is not going to look good in like, practices not going to look good in like controlled environments but for whatever reason you put him in the game setting i think he's going to shine and he's one of those guys who you know he's intriguing i don't he's got that little bit of that moxie you mentioned like you know some patrick mahomes not in terms of his play or caliber of talent i i've said this year at times that moxiness and something is a little bit baker-esque and some of the stuff that you know we were talking about baker you know before baker rose up to be in the first pick in the draft like you know when people were talking about baker the summer before his final season in college so those are two really intriguing guys i think both of them have a legitimate chance to go off the board now on night two so as we kind of come to the you know final portion or so of the shows you mentioned Daniel Jones probably being outside of your top five. I feel like there's probably one name we haven't got upon, got into your top five. I have my guess at who it is, but uh, it, who's the guy who maybe we haven't talked about yet that is in your top five and share some thoughts on him and maybe a few other guys, quick hitter style, if maybe you're a little bit higher on some other guys than maybe some other people are. Yeah, sure. And the guy that's going to be QB4 for me, the... I mentioned Rosen being one of them. This might be and probably is my favorite storyline this entire draft because of the growing dichotomy between how the NFL seems to view this quarterback and how all of us seem to view this quarterback on the outside. That's Brett Rippon. And I have been, you know, I first wrote about Brett Rippon back when he was a freshman. Now, back in 2015. And from watching this kid over the past couple of seasons, if you want the refined sort of veteran quarterback. This is probably the class that probably doesn't really have that type of player. You know, Joe Marino over the draft network um, put all these quarterbacks under the Parcells rules microscope. And of course, you're probably being thrown out the window because a lot of them require you to have been in school for a long time. None of these guys are staying in school. You know, we're looking at Dwayne Haskins and Kyler Murray, two one-year starters. But at quarterbacks under the sort of Parcells rules microscope, Brett Rippon and Ryan Finley are the two guys to check all seven boxes. And with Brett Rippon, you know, I mentioned plays that stick with you. When I mentioned talking about, you know, studying games where a quarterback struggles or his team struggles or the team loses. His game against San Diego State, a game that Boise State lost. You see him on a third and 10 in the second half. He sees the blitz coming, identifies a pre-snap, changes the protection, brings the tight end in to help in the protection. The blitz still gets missed. He still gets drilled in the chops and he sees it coming. 
but just drills in a throw in a deep out route from the left hash to the right sideline to move the chains on third down. You know, that's sort of the stuff that you're going to need to do as an NFL quarterback. You know, how do you respond to and adapt to and overcome pressure in the pocket? There it is, folks. You know, from the huddle to the whistle. That's what you want to see from an NFL quarterback. You see him make throws to all levels of the field with accuracy, with sufficient velocity. And I don't care about the 59 miles per hour with him and Will Greer. I didn't have an issue with Brett Rippon in terms of the arm strength problem. I thought he met the threshold. And you see him deliver some throws to all levels of the field with sufficient velocity. You see him throwing this ridiculous touchdown in the front corner of the, the, the front left corner of the end zone from the right hash mark against Colorado State, which I didn't know how he got it in there, but he did against the cover two look. And he checked the arm talent box for me. You see him do the little things, looking off defenders, using his eyes, manipulating defenders with his eyes. It comes naturally to him, whether it's a free high, single high safety, whether it's that linebacker, that whole linebacker underneath. And so I see a refined passer that, yeah, he doesn't have the ceiling of a Kyler Murray or Dwayne Haskins or maybe even a Drew Locke, but he's got a very nice floor to him. And if I'm a team that needs a quarterback somewhere in the next two years or so, I don't need him to play right away, and I've got a stable system in place. If he's there sometime on day two, I'm totally fine drafting him there. Now, that being said, didn't get a senior bowl invite. You look at the Pro Football Weekly Draft Guide, which I did some work on, wasn't even listed by Greg Gabriel, who was a scouting director for the Bears for nine, ten years. You know, he was one of the throwing quarterbacks at the Combine, which, yeah, guys like Tony Romo and stuff have gone on to NFL careers, but that also tells you how the NFL might view him. There seems to be this gulf between the NFL and guys like me, and whether it's Kyle Krabs, who has him, I think, at six, or Derek Clawson, who has him at like at four, just like I do. Everybody on the outside seems to really highly regard this kid and think highly of him. NFL might not like him. Now, we'll see if that 59-whatever miles per hour moves the needle on him a bit. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I would go and ban the table for this kid, you know, immediately on day two. You know, I'm, that's kind of where I have him. I have, I'm probably have a third round grade on him, but quarterbacks get pushed up the board. And so I feel comfortable about him on day two. He might not hear his name called. It might not be till the sixth or seventh round, you know, but Brett Rippert is a kid that, look, I'm willing to go to bat for. I've enjoyed watching him over the past couple of years. He does the little things. He's a smart, heady, veteran type quarterback. He's great in the pre-snap phase. If there's an issue with him, it might be the quicksand issue. You see him. You know, you look at his bowl game two years ago against Oregon through a bad pick six. I was like excited to see that because I wanted to see him battle back. And he started leading a drive. It looked great. Then threw another disastrous pick. Sometimes it takes him a drive or two to get back into rhythm. You know, you watch the Mountain West Championship game against Fresno State. They ended up losing that game. He seemed to struggle a little bit in some elements. He does have the nine inch hand, so maybe there's a hand size thing. Some teams do swear by that. But I still like this kid. And so, yeah, Brett Rippon is that, you know, QB4 for me. I'm a, I'm a fan. And maybe I'm missing something. But, you know, we, we have the guys we like. And Rippon's one of those guys for me. Yeah, I mean, listen, there's been a, a, there's a lot of support out there for him. And my follow-up question, which you already answered, was going to be why do we think there's that disconnect so much? Why wasn't he one of those nine guys that were at the Senior Bowl? And I think you talked about some of the things that, you know, that they could, you know, potentially be concerned about. Maybe it's the arm talent, see if that, velo- you know, velocity thing, you know, impacts that in any way, shape, or form. And, and he kind of has, you know, some late movement here. It's going to be fun to track that. So. 
I guess I'm going to bring up two other names because I thought maybe the fourth guy was going to be a different guy. So I at least want to hear your quick thoughts on, on two less quarterbacks, and then we can round it out unless Matt has any other guys he wants to pick your brain on. Uh, one is Jared Stidham, who when the season started, you know, I think many people thought he was maybe going to be in consideration to be a top 10, top 15 pick, or at least around one pick. I don't think Auburn really did him any favors there. It was always a poor, you know, Matt and I have been saying poor selection for him to, to go there and and kind of fit into that scheme. Didn't make much sense. I thought he looked pretty good uh, at times at the senior ball. I thought he threw the ball well at the combine as well. And then uh, Clayton Thorson at a Northwestern is an intriguing name because I've watched him. I've watched games on him. I've written a profile on him. And I, I always walked away saying, okay, I didn't, you know, think that highly of him, but Jim Nagy, who did a tremendous job, you know, at, at, at with the senior bowl this year, you know, he put out things there around the senior bowl saying like NFL teams, you know, really wanted him there are really intrigued by him. Every team that we talked to, you know, you know, basically said they didn't have lower than a third round grade on him. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm struggling to see that when I've watched him, I know Northwestern wasn't the greatest team, you know, but what do you think about those two guys? Uh, because I think they're two very intriguing players, uh, you know, that generate some buzz. Yeah. I, and Stidham is a guy that is kind of on the outside of the top five for me looking in. I, I think, you know, he's had a fantastic draft process. But it's also sort of hard to divorce the draft process from the film. And part of that is, you know, the context of the scheme he was running at Auburn. You know, when I watched him sort of last summer getting ready for this year, I thought that, look, if they let him do more, ask more of him as a quarterback, and he responds, he's a guy that's going to get some round one buzz. Well, they didn't really ask that much more of him. He didn't really respond anyway. You look at, for example, opens the game against LSU on a sprint right smash, throws a pick. Opens the game against Mississippi State, sprint right smash, and he throws, it, throws what should have been a pick. Basically the same play. It's like you got to be able to learn from your mistakes, and he wasn't. But that being said, in the build-up to the Super Senior Bowl week, you know, I wrote this, Joe Marino wrote this, other people said it. If you were going to bet on a guy to rise, it would have been Stidham. Why? One, getting away from that Auburn offense, who's going to be coached by Kyle Shanahan. And two, look, he's clean mechanically, has a fantastic arm, so you get him thrown in shorts against air, and he's going to look good. And that's exactly what happened. And, you know, I got a chance to talk to him, and I asked him, you know, what was your favorite route concept to run this week? And he looked at me, and he laughed, and he basically said all of them. And that tells me, like, I get it. You just got done running two years of Gus Malzahn's offense. Now you're running Kyle Shanahan's offense. You would have done anything. You know, you would have been happy running any of that stuff. And so you do have to sort of divorce the tape from the the, the process and the combine and the pro day and all that stuff. Because, of course, he had a fantastic pro day. But I think there is something there with him. And he is clean mechanically. He does have good velocity and at times pretty good placement to all fields. You do see him do some of the little things. I mean, I mentioned that Wednesday at the Senior Bowl. He probably had my favorite play out of any of these quarterbacks from all Senior Bowl week. And when he was just manipulated an underneath hole defender, getting that underneath linebacker to open a up and move away from the three receiver side and get to the two receiver side. Then he throws that backside slant. Anytime as a quarterback, you can get a defender, you know, whether it's a safety, a linebacker to do what they have been told not to do. That's what you want to see in terms of manipulation. So, you know, I love seeing when a quarterback can get that Mike linebacker who's taught to open to three, to run away from that. If you can do that with your eyes, if you can do that with your shoulders and things like that, 
you're doing something special as a quarterback. And so seeing Stidham do stuff like that, you know, I think there is something there with him. And so I think the league's going to like him. I think he's probably in that, you know, round two, early round three range. Um, maybe he climbs up a little bit. Um, we'll see. But I, I do think there is something with him. Thorson, Paul, I I go back and forth. I'm kind of hot and cold on him. Um, there are times when you can see it work very clear mechanically. He shows you a bit of anticipation. He shows you a bit of that sort of ability to sort of move around and show some comfort in the pocket and show the ability to sort of click and climb the pocket. But then, you know, I'm, I'm flipping to my weaknesses on him. Conservative at times, late with decisions at times. You know, I got some... I saw a, sort of a similar thing with him and Trace McSorley where you could see the mental approach is there, the thought process is there, but then it sort of breaks down and it's a failure to execute, you know, whether it's missing throws or missing opportunities or things like that. Seems to struggle at times with a touch. So he's a very sort of inconsistent player. And part of that might be coming back from the knee injury. You know, maybe there's that issue going on, but, you know, then he doesn't go to Mobile and, eh, you know, he's more of that sort of round, you know, I mean, day three type guy. I'm sure the NFL is going to like him. Some teams will like him. I'm sure Jim Nagy was telling the truth. Teams wanted to see him there. And he had a sort of a round three grade from some teams. So he's probably going to end up picked on day two because he sort of looks the part. But I just sort of like you was kind of hot and cold on him. You know, I, I got a couple like last players that just jump out to mind to me because I'd love to know where you stand with them. And those players for me are going to be Jordan Teamu from Old Miss. And also, I, I mean, I know there's a lot of people all over the place on this particular guy, but I, you know what? I'm going to throw him out there anyway. How do you feel about Ryan Finley from NC State? Let's start with Tamo. Um, he's one of those test cases for scout the traits, not the scheme, because you look at that Mississippi offense and they ran like three plays. I mean, that's basically what they did. I mean, it was basically, you know, 95, where it's a go route and a hitch route to one side or the other, um, 989, a lot of vertical type, Coriel type stuff. And so it's hard to divorce him from the idea that he's going to be just a vertical based passer. He does some nice things. He shows some pocket toughness. He shows some of the mental approach on those route concepts that you would like to see from a quarterback. But I think he's, you know, we've heard this about Tyree Jackson. He's a year away from being a year away. You know, I think that might be sort of an appropriate thing for Jordan Tamil because there's going to be, because of the offense that they were running, because of what he was asked to do, or even more accurately wasn't asked to do, there's going to be some developmental issues in terms of where he has to get to. But that being said, there are some nice things with him from the ability to throw downfield, from an athletic profile at times, some pocket toughness as well. And so, you know, if you were hoping to get Tyree Jackson as a developmental quarterback and you missed on him, you know, Temo isn't a bad sort of backup plan. You know, he's not a bad consolation prize if that's the route you want to go down as an organization. As for Finley, you know, Finley, if it wasn't for my love of Brett Rippon, you know, throwing that out there, Finley might be the guy in that mix for me because as we were talking about with Rippon, checks those seven parcels rules. I thought, on film, I had some questions about the arm talent, but he spun it really well when you get to see him up close and personal down in Mobile. And that's one of the good things about seeing these guys live is sometimes it doesn't translate the velocity and how they throw the football until you see it up close and personally. Spun it pretty well down in Mobile. Very smart kid. 
you know, even though they lost this game against Syracuse, that was one of my favorite games of any of these quarterbacks to study because the Orange spun their safeties a ton at the snap. He had to do a lot from the mental perspective, and I thought he read those spun safety looks incredibly well. Hit a touchdown early in that game on a spun safety look that was one of those put-the-pen-down moments in a good way. You see him, and you, you talk to him. I get a chance to talk to him about one of their favorite three-receiver concepts where they have sort of a post route from number one, an out and up from number two, and then an out route from number three. And he talked about how they love to put one of their best receivers at that three spot and get them matched up with either a safety or a Mike linebacker, and they would throw that a ton. So he gives you that mental approach, a very good timing and rhythm-based passer. So similar to Rippon, he's a guy that I think is a very nice floor. Again, probably doesn't have a tremendous ceiling. you know. But if you're looking to sort of – Get that guy that's some insurance for either an aging quarterback or maybe if you're a team that has a younger starter but you're a little iffy on, you know, Finley, Rippon, those might be some good guys to keep in mind. So, you know, I like Finley. I think he's got a nice floor to him. You know, he'll probably be a fourth, fifth, sixth round type of guy, you know, but I think a team is going to get a good quarterback when they draft him. Yeah, listen, I think those guys, I think that there's, there's decent depth. I think there's definitely questions about the top end guys and maybe a couple guys getting pushed up into round one that don't belong there per se. But I do think there's some intriguing guys there, whether it's day two, whether it's, you know, a guy falling to day three, you know, round four or whatever. I think there's some intriguing names there kind of across the board in terms of what you're looking for. You're looking for that big upside developmental guy that's Tyree Jackson. If you're looking for the guy who maybe can be a really quality backup spot starter, maybe, you know, certain schemes, certain systems, be a, a average starter. I think Ryan Finley's there. And then there's all different ones in between, you know, those guys as well that I think makes it a little bit intriguing. I think the more intriguing thing is, especially in terms of the day two guys that we were talking about, is I don't know right now how high the need at quarterback is for some teams. Obviously, there's some teams that are very much, you know, in the need for a quarterback, you know, whether it's the Giants or the Dolphins, you know, and the Broncos and, and a couple other teams here or there, but it, it's going to be intriguing to see if teams, some of these teams get guys in round one. Well, then I don't know if some of these guys who we think are going to go off the board in round two, is it going to be teams that maybe are looking three years down the line, like maybe the Chargers or, you know, we'll throw the Patriots in the mix based on how long we think Brady might play or, you know, the, the Steelers, but they just invested a second, a day two pick in, you know, Mason Rudolph. So you start to kind of go through the rosters of the NFL teams and say, how many teams are going to look to waste, not waste, or look to spend the top 100 pick on a quarterback? And I think most people, you know, at least want to have the hope that if they take a guy in the second or third round, that he has at least a chance to be a starter. I think that's the goal for most teams because there are a lot of valuable other players who are starters in that. And we know that most NFL starters come from round one, but that does, you know, that doesn't stop people from, you know, taking risks in, you know, in day two, round two, round three. And I think those teams do it, but at least the mindset of thinking that maybe down the line, they could be a starter. I just don't know how many teams, you know, are really looking for that this year, especially if the teams that are in high need get the guy in round one. So I think that's going to be a fascinating storyline that some of these guys that we do think are day two picks, do they fall further than we might think because of, of that scenario? So it's an interesting, you know, thing to kind of let itself play out. A lot of fun storylines with the quarterback position from the guys at the top to the Josh Rosen angle. Uh, and then obviously the day two and some guys that may fall to day three as well.
Mark, this was an absolute blast, as it always is. I think we covered 11 or 12 guys tonight, you know, really breaking down deep, getting into this quarterback class, you know, talking about a lot of different things on the field, their traits, their skills, how they solve problems. Thank you so much for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure. Oh, Paul, Matt, it's always great to be with you guys. I'm surprised you guys didn't ask me about Easton Stick, a.k.a. Julian Edelman 2.0. I, I can't <laughs> wait for that to sort of play itself out because we all know, look, after that three cone, I mean, come on, Belichick's got 12 picks. He's looking at Easton Stick and he's thinking, oh, boy, going to do it all over again. So, uh, but, you know, as always, guys, it, it was a tremendous, you know, night chatting with you guys. You know, to sort of get to Paul's point quickly, you know, I'll throw out some teams that it wouldn't surprise me to see them go quarterback. Maybe a Tampa Bay, you know, maybe a Detroit, or maybe a Cincinnati, or maybe an Atlanta, you know, maybe a Carolina. And, you know, there are always these teams that sort of come out of nowhere and address quarterback when you wouldn't think they were going to do it. I mean, think back to C.J. Beathard. You know, it was kind of a stunner when he came off the board where he did, even though, you know, the 49ers, were they really going to go C.J. Beathard here? Okay, well, it kind of panned out for them. And so there's always one or two teams that kind of surprises you sort of in that mid-round range where you're thinking, oh, that's interesting. I mean, the Mason Rudolph one is another good example, Paul, where, okay, they're not going to go quarterback early, but they're going to go Mason Rudolph here, a guy that people thought might have been snuck into the first round. And so it'll be interesting. I think there'll be some surprise teams come that, you know, day two of the draft that maybe address quarterback and we weren't really ready for seeing that happen. But guys, blast to be with you. Always a ton of fun. You guys do such fantastic work throughout the year with the show during the combine. Paul, you're just crushing it on Twitter. And it's just always an honor to be on with you, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's it's a fun time of the year breaking down these evals. And I think you make a point. There are some intriguing teams there that you mentioned that, you know, might not be teams that are looking for a quarterback right now and might be a little bit of a curveball. I think Cincinnati is one that definitely should, you know, I would say that they're in the quarterback yeah. mix and yeah. they should 100% be looking to potentially upgrade there as well. Matt, any final parting shots? Any thoughts here? No, no, no. I think the episode was great. Mark, thank you as always. It, it really is a pleasure, man. And and hopefully we can get you on again. Like I said, hopefully for a deep dive, we can kind of get into the weeds on some of these philosophical and and kind of really theoretical breakdowns of, of the whole human movement system, how we evaluate players, how we look at them, how we should be kind of reconciling performance versus, you know, actual skill and, and what that really means. It, it would really just be a great conversation. Well, I'd rather talk. I'd rather do that than have the fights over two versus Justin Herbert because those are coming. I can't wait for those. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Listen, every year there's always more quarterbacks on the horizon, and then you know Matt and I we talk regularly about that twenty. 21 class as well as what can be coming down the, the road there as well. So absolutely great show. Again, Mark, thank you so much. It was a blast to have you on. So for, on behalf of Mark, on behalf of Matt, on behalf of our sound and tech engineer, David Nakano and myself, thank you for joining us. And we look forward next time taking you from Saturday to Sunday.